Hello, my name is Tom Boone. And I'm Joanna Bailey. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Simple Flying Podcast, where we'll give you the lowdown on the latest news from the world of commercial aviation. Here's what we have for you this week. Coming up today, I'll take a look at a couple of mergers that could change aviation in the the Americas, while Tom takes a look at a piece of bad news for Boeing customers. Project Sunrise is finally confirmed, Joe will fill us in on that, while I look at the first ever American registered A380s, because, you know, I can't not talk about the A380s on this podcast. (laughs) There's always an A380 angle. (laughs) Finally, I'll look at pilot shortages and how they're affecting schedules. So now you know what's in store, let's get on with the show. And Joe, take us away. Tell us about these amazing um, merger deals. <laughs> so consolidation seems to be the order of the day. Um, I wanted to just share a little update on the Spirit JetBlue situation, because um, I think we talked about this last week, um, and I do find it's it's getting more and more dramatic by the day. It's very exciting to watch what's going on. So um, basically, JetBlue and Spirit opened a conversation about their offer to buy the air airline, JetBlue's offer to buy Spirit. Um, And Spirit wasn't really happy with what they were offering. So JetBlue attempted to boost its offer. They added a divestiture commitment, a remedy package for concerns around their partnership with American Airlines, which is known as the Northeast Alliance, NEA, um, and a reverse breakup fee. So to break that down, the divestiture says that JetBlue would divest assets of both airlines to limit any negative impact of the takeover. The remedy package for the NEA suggests divesting Spirit assets specifically in New York and Boston so that JetBlue doesn't become too strong in those areas that are already covered by its partnership with American Airlines. And the reverse breakup fee allocates around $200 million to Spirit in the event that the deal falls through on competition concerns. Um, And as we know, the JetBlue offer for for Spirit was approximately 47% higher than that of Frontier at $33 per common share. So what did Spirit say to all that? Well, in short, it said no. Um, (laughs) In particular, um, the management board issued a kind of open letter that everybody could read um, to Robin Hayes at JetBlue, saying that in order to constitute what JetBlue considered to be a superior proposal to Frontiers, the offer must be reasonably capable of being consummated. The board at Spirit thinks that JetBlue's proposal falls short on this standard. Um, Now, Spirit's concern is that the combination of JetBlue and Spirit will probably not get through antitrust clearance, um, particularly given JetBlue's already strong position with American Airlines and the Northeast Alliance. if you've been following that little saga, you will know that there is still an ongoing court case with the DOJ and attorneys general in six different states and the District of Columbia who have been suing to block the NEA because they reckon that it's making JetBlue um, too powerful, American Airlines too powerful in the Northeast area. Adding spirit to the mix is unlikely to help their cause with that. Um, Not that the spirit deal would be likely to get through at all, but it's not only the NEA that's of concern to the board of spirit. Um, So the tie-up of JetBlue and Spirit would, in effect, remove the largest ultra-low-cost carrier airline from the US market. Um, It also notes that the reconfiguration of Spirit airplanes into JetBlue standards would massively reduce capacity on former Spirit routes. This, it says, would lead to higher prices for consumers. Um, This is kind of the conclusion that we'd all come to, that this is more of a move to take out a competitor than to actually um, grow, although it obviously would 
could help JetBlue grow. Anyway, the Spirit Board concluded their letter saying, given this substantial completion risk, we believe JetBlue's economic offer is illusory and Spirit's Board has not found it necessary to consider it. Um, so clearly, the board is not keen to proceed with JetBlue. They're much happier to continue along their trajectory with Frontier. Um, but ultimately, the board does answer to the shareholders. So, you know, the door for JetBlue isn't completely closed yet. Um, but it's quite a saga and I'm enjoying following it. Um, in other consolidation news, uh, a bit further south in the Americas, Avianca has made an offer to buy out low-cost competitor Viva and the offer has been accepted. Details are kind of scarce at present, but the communications so far suggest that Viva will retain its brand and its independence, but will become a part of the Avianca group. Um, so, I mean, this is also very interesting because Avianca recently came out of Chapter 11 restructuring and it's had a very strong start to 2022. M many of its routes have already been restored, new routes have launched, and it confirmed an order for 88 Airbus A320neos just last month. Um, the fact that it's interested in Viva is kind of unsurprising. Uh, that airline has performed exceptionally well throughout COVID. Um, and with the help of Viva, Colombia's air traffic has already surpassed pre-pandemic levels. Um, the carrier handled 5.18 million passengers in 2021 and grew almost 20% in a year where most other airlines were still pulling back. So if this goes through, which obviously will be subjected to other antitrust considerations as well, uh, it will sig signal significant consolidation in the Colombian marketplace and in Latin America generally, because its Peruvian um, subsidiary is also con considered in this deal. Uh, between the two airlines, though, the impact in Colombia will be the most because their share in Colombia will reach 65%. Um, I have to say it doesn't bode well for ticket prices, and it would be a shame to see Viva being slurped up by the larger competitor. Um, but this is always what happens, consolidation and, and uh, cooperation. And we'll have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, uh, we will have to see where, how it plays out. Um, there's something else that I want to talk about where we have to see how it plays out. And that's um, something that's perhaps a bit more confirmed, but still very uncertain. Um, as you know, we're back in our quarterly series of everyone releases their results all at once. Um, and last month, uh, last week even, Boeing, late last week, released their, um, their Q1 earnings. And there was a really interesting little tidbit in there, at least from my point of view, in that they now, um, they've added another delay to the 777X um, program. So, you know, the first of these aircraft were meant to be delivered, I think, even last year, maybe, perhaps. Um, you know, this is an aircraft that right now should be flying for airlines. But, um, you know, it's, it was pushed to 2023. Um, now, Boeing doesn't believe it's going to get certification for this jet until late 2024. And what this essentially means for the carriers is that they don't expect deliveries now until 2025, because... Um, there'll be like a short delay between um, deliver, uh, certification and deliveries, I assume. It's not going to be on the same day, whatnot. Um, what I found quite interesting was, um, you know, Boeing, they've already been building 777Xs for a couple of years now. They've got, according to, um, I had a look at a, a website called BOE Family Flights, and according to them, 20 777X airframes have so far been spotted at Boeing's Payne Field facility. Um, you know, if you this is excluding the four test aircraft that are flying. 
And according to that portal, uh, three of those are bound for all Nippon Airways, nine for Emirates, five for Lufthansa, and three for Qatar Airways. Um, you know, they've got these sitting, they're essentially sitting here. And, um, you know, it's it's not great, as we saw with the 737 MAX um, dilemma, drama, whatever you want to call it, you know, um, Boeing essentially pays for the materials and whatnot um, and the staff costs to build these at the point of building them. Um, but then the majority of what the airline pays for an aircraft is paid on delivery. Um, so if you think of it like um, like a supermarket, you know, the supermarket pays for the goods and then um, stores them and then the customer pays for it when they want it. So the whole time... Um, the, the the goods are sitting on the shelf and not sold, or the airplanes are just sitting on the ground in this case. Uh, money is just kind of locked up in them, if that makes sense for Boeing. Um, so uh, it's not a great idea to just keep building aircraft when you can't deliver them. So Boeing has um, said that they're going to pause 777X production for a year um, or so. But what that means is that um, they are just able to make more 777s that are already certified. So, um, you know, they're going to keep the production line alive, just building different planes. And I mean, the other thing about if you build a load of planes before they're ready to go as well is that, um, you know, if they build... 100 777Xs before it gets certified and they certify it on the condition that this is changed um, and they've got to change it on 100 jets whereas if you build 100 jets after it's certified you can build that change into them if that makes sense. Um, so I mean that's that's kind of um, an interesting one from my point of view. Um, it's interesting as well to see where the airlines are because you know um, Emirates they've been quite vocal in the past about how the, they're not happy with delays. Um, it would seem that this is not necessarily a huge deal breaker from them at this point, but I think they are sort of very clear that they're getting to the end of their tether. Um, you know, I, I I spoke with a Lufthansa spokesperson who said. Um, pretty much a standard we are in exchanges with Boeing and adapting to the new situation um for them what it could mean is that the 777 uh, the 747-400 stay around a little bit longer because they are supposed to be on a sort of one in one out type dealio with the 777x um British Airways is quite interesting as well as I said um you know, Boeing is expecting certification in late 24. Um, British Airways or IAG speaking on their behalf said they're not expecting their first jet until mid 25. So um, they're clearly aware that there's going to be like a backlog of other customers going before they get theirs. Um, you know, it could be a bit of an issue for them, though, because they um, they were meant to originally when they placed the order, they were going to retire um, the 747-400 and bring the 777X in. The pandemic came around and they were like, well, we don't need so many planes now, so we'll retire the 747. And then um, as the demand increases, we will take 777Xs to meet that demand. Um, now they're kind of stuck in a situation where demand is increasing, but they're perhaps not going to have these aircraft available to meet that demand. So um, it will be interesting to see to see what what does happen from that point of view, because they're also short of, um, uh, I think, uh, around ten or so triple seven seven eight seven dash tens, because they haven't been delivered for around a year now. So. Um, it would be quite an interesting watch this space one. Oh my goodness! Imagine if they brought the seven four sevens back. If any yeah, of them that's are not still happening. I, I don't think um, that would happen. I think um, 
you know, they probably, I, my money would be on them taking other airlines A380s before they did that. But I even think that's extremely unlikely. Oh, my um, goodness. But, you it's know, very interesting, got, though. Yeah, A380s are just sitting there and we know BA likes them. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it works at Heathrow. It's about one of the only yeah. places it does work. Yeah, but, it's uh, interesting. Yeah. I was having a chat yesterday with someone uh, going a bit off topic here. And I was, because, um, uh, you know, last week you were saying about Malaysia Airlines, um, like pr perhaps not bringing back the A380. And, you know, you've got people mm. like Thai on that. And um, I think when demand returns, um, you know, across their whole operations, I think it's fair to say they probably won't miss the A380s. But I think mm. a couple of these carriers may miss them on uh, like their specific Heathrow routes. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, other congested airports as well, if they come mm. back to the sort of capacity they had before. Um, mm. I tend to wonder if Air France will regret um, their quick decision to get rid of them because uh, Charles de Gaulle is a, a very congested airport. And, uh, you yeah, know, for some I of their flagship transatlantic routes, you can see that that thing, level of capacity would work. Yeah, I think the thing with Air France, though, is, you know, like a lot of them have um, taken it out because of the A3, um, because of the pandemic. But Air France was already clear before the pandemic. They know, hated it. <laughs> they didn't want it, so they yeah. were they they consciously made that decision um, because of demand and slots and all that in in mm. in mind, rather than solely on the pandemic. Mm, definitely. Well, I think it's a good idea that Boeing stopped producing them for now because mm. everything's still very much up in the air. And uh, I should imagine they're running out of parking space, what with all the Dreamliners and undelivered Maxes they've got to store. <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit evil. But <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're delivering the Maxes. I kind of wonder, I was just thinking, I, I'm not I wonder sure how many are still... they through the entire backlog, though. Um, no, I mean, but, they are doing you know... very well. They're popping them out very quickly, but they're still yeah. producing them as well. And they're talking mm. about upticking the production rate. So, hmm. Yeah, I don't think they would uptick that if they didn't have somewhere to store them, though. So, you know, I think it's generally quite a good situation for them. But a 777X has got to take up a lot of space, even with its mm. wingtips folded, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a beast. It is a big beast. Anyway, let's move along. Um, so the big news of this week was, of course, a huge order from Qantas. Mm. Um, very exciting, uh, which came along with the confirmation at last of Project Sunrise, so you'll remember there's been multiple diversions, delays. They officially gave the green light on Monday morning this week. Mm. Um, Alan Joyce made the announcement in Sydney alongside a prototype Project Sunrise plane, um, an A350-1000 in Qantas livery that was specially flown in from Toulouse for, for the occasion. Livery. Airbus livery with Qantas's logo slapped on the side. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, it wasn't exactly full, uh, full livery, was it? But uh, you, you, you get the nod. <laughs> you get the idea. So, from 2025, which isn't that long away now, a fleet of 12 A350-1000s will fly non-stop from Australia's east coast to London and to New York. Um, but in addition to that, Qantas also confirmed an order for 40 new A321XLRs and Airbus A220s to fly short and domestic and some of the medium-haul international routes replacing existing aircraft. The first of those will be landing in Australia in 2023. Qantas also secured options for a further 94 narrowbody Airbus jets spread over the next decade. Um, altogether, this made up the largest aircraft order in Australian aviation history. Um, so quite a big deal and a very big win for Airbus. Um, so the plan to link Australia's East Coast cities to destinations on the other side of the world um, in one single hop was 
due to launch, I think just before the pandemic hit, actually, uh, we were expecting an order literally weeks before lockdowns began. And Qantas had already picked its modified A350-1000s as the preferred aircraft. Um, But just literally weeks away from confirming the order, the world turned upside down. Everything kind of closed. As we know, Australia was hit really badly. But Qantas never gave up on Project Sunrise. I think it was fairly regular, um, maybe every six months or so, Alan Joyce would pop up and remind everyone that non-stop flights to New York, Cape Town and London were definitely still on the agenda. Um, Indeed, he argued, in fact, as the airline industry recovered from the pandemic, passengers will prefer to bypass these busy transit ports, making the case for Project Sunrise flights even more compelling. Um, So it wasn't a very big secret that there was an order coming because everybody saw the A350-1000 registered FWMIL partly decked out in Qantas colours arriving in Australia. Yeah, I mean, there were photos of it wearing the Qantas logo leaving Paris. So that was... Yeah, it was pretty obvious um, where it was going. (laughs) Yeah, and I think they had the Air Baltic A220 as well. (laughs) They did, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that was on a bit of an Asia-Pacific tour, so it wasn't Mm. quite such a surprise. Um, But, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was quite obvious there was something afoot. Um, Hmm. But interestingly, it, um, it flew to Perth and then went from Perth to Sydney. So it didn't make the Toulouse to Sydney flight in one hop, which is kind of Project Sunrise's big selling point. Um, you'd think that with no passengers on board, they might have done that for just the, you know, the kudos of it, but they didn't. Anyway, we'll, we'll never know that why that decision was made by Airbus. I might ask them one day. Anyway, passengers who are going to take the Project Sunrise flights are in for a bit of a treat um, if they can afford the premium cabins because there's six fully enclosed first-class suites which feature a separate bed with a, well, bed, you know, a fixed bed with a separate seat. Um, There are also lie-flat business class seats with sliding doors and upgraded premium economy and economy class seats. So altogether, um, the A350s will only carry 238 passengers and more than 40% of the cabin will be dedicated to premium seating. So this is in comparison to, you know, more than 300 seats on most other airlines or, you know, nearer 500 if you're Cebu Pacific. (laughs) And each Project Sunrise aircraft will include a wellness zone where passengers can stretch their legs and get the blood flowing again. I think the idea is you do a bit of yoga on board, but uh, whether people actually make use of it remains to be seen. Um, What I found also interesting, though, was the order for the Airbus narrowbodies. Project Sunrise is the big headline-grabbing story. But hello, there's 20 A321XLRs and 20 A22300s confirmed to replace Qantas's Boeing 737s and 717s. Um, So... This is, they're both actually um, quite a big size compared to the aircraft they're replacing. I think the um, A321s are about 20% larger than the 737s they're replacing and about 25% for the A220s over the size of the 717s. Um, and they also fly a lot further as well. So, you know, this is kind of an expansion for Qantas. Um, they're going to be arriving the A220s in 2023 and the XLRs in 2024. And with those 94 options, Those are for any of those plane types, basically, um, across the A320 and A220 families. Um, Qantas has basically got their pick of delivery timing and aircraft type flexibility, you know, as they see their business model rolling out, as they see demand picking up. Um, But I think it's, you know, interesting to see they've jumped the Airbus way because a lot of people thought they would maybe go for the MAX um, alongside some Embraer E2s. Um, But obviously, it's going to be a very Airbus heavy airline in the future, although I, I have to say, I don't think the Dreamliners are going anywhere. 
Sticking on the Airbus theme, I wanted to talk about the A380 because, you know, this is something that, um, you know, I cannot do the podcast without talking about and probably should learn to do the podcast without talking about so that <laughs> we don't lose viewers but um, or listeners. But, um, you know, this week I wanted to talk about the Airbus A380 in America. And that's because, you know, no American Airlines or US Airlines ever went through with an order for the Airbus A380. You know, I think the closest that we got before to having the giant of the skies on the end register was probably from the freighter orders that were cancelled by FedEx and UPS. But despite this, you know, there are now actually finally two Airbus A380s on the US aircraft registry. Although it probably won't be the case for long. So you may recall that in February, two China Southern Airlines um, A320, uh, A380s <laughs> uh, went out to Victorville in the Mojave Desert. Well, a couple of hours later, they positioned over to Mojave Air and Spaceport, which is around 47 nautical miles as the crow flies. And both of these aircraft have since been re-registered in the United States. And um, I think the reason for the stop in Victorville was probably to complete immigration and customs formalities, as Mojave is not um, a port of entry uh, for the CBP. But I don't know this for sure. So uh, mm. don't take that as um, as um, the, the, the stuff. But, um, you know, it's, it's <laughs> interesting because um, both of these jets are only around 11 years old. Um, they've been flown out to the desert, but it's not like, you know, Qantas flew its um, Airbus A380s out to the Mojave Desert, but that was purely for storage, and they're now coming back. It looks like these two jets are not going to be as lucky and that they're going to be scrapped. Um, you know, I think there would be a possibility that they could be sold on to another person, but, you know, realistically, that's not that's not an option at all. Um, so it's, it's kind of a shame to see that, but... Um, I think it's kind of cool that the U.S. finally did get its register, U.S. registered A380s, even if it's not under the best terms, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly headline grabbing that there's now two hmm. American A380s, even if they'll never yeah. fly, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a cool bit of a tip, tip hmm. bit of a story you uncovered there, Tom, and uh, yeah. so did our readers. So thanks for sharing that. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> so to close off today, normally we like to finish the podcast with a lighthearted story. Um, and I was thinking about doing one about a cat that escaped and ran crazy around an airplane cabin because um, that did rather oh, well I on saw the site last week. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but no, I felt like we haven't discussed enough about the chaos that was Easter and spring break. Um, and, you know, the, the general kind of what's going on in aviation uh, in the bigger picture, if you like, particularly looking at the US market. So what we're seeing really is that as demand is starting to normalise again, airlines are seeing the other side of the pandemic. Mm. But of course, so many furloughed their staff during the crisis and a lot of pilots and even, you know, cabin crew and other, other aviation workers took retirement or found other jobs. So now airlines are finding they're rather shorthanded. Um, and that's being compounded by t people taking time off sick, either because of COVID or just, you know, common cold and bugs because the world's no longer masked and socially distanced. We're all catching everything. Um, so if we rewind to the start of April, um, we saw a bit of a chaotic start to the summer season for pretty much all the US airlines. Um, Southwest, JetBlue and Alaska particularly struggled to cope amid shortages of not just pilots, but other staff as well. Um, and that was compounded by bad weather and technological hiccups. Um, Alaska cancelled around 9% of its flights over the first weekend in April. JetBlue um, had about 33% cancelled and 35% 
were delayed. Southwest had um, 14 to 15% cancelled across the weekend. But it wasn't just that weekend. This was a trend that continued right across April um, and to a lesser extent with all the other airlines as well. You know, we had chaos here in the UK. Um, I think everybody will have seen the viral photos of the um, security checkpoints in Manchester where people are just kind of piling their trays on top of one another mm. trying to get through. Yeah, I don't know what was going on there. <laughs> no, not a clue. Um, and, you know, there's many tabloid stories about people who missed their flights and missed their holidays and lost their money. Anyway, um, the issue is, you know, the, the, there isn't enough. We can't get people back into the industry fast enough to cope with the demand. And that was the first big holiday since everything relaxed. Um, obviously, airlines want to stop it continuing into the summer season, into the summer peak. Um, so we've seen that airlines are starting to pull down their schedules. Looking back at the US again as an example of this, JetBlue cut a bunch of its services. They removed 27 routes during April. And then last week, it pulled another nine. So altogether, it's, it's pulled about 10% of its entire flights for the summer schedule down. Um, Southwest was due to fly more routes this June than it did in 2019, but it's had to cut almost 7% of services. Um, that's around 9,000 flights across the month. Um, Alaska, although a smaller cut, it's you know smaller airlines, so I guess easier to manage. They've removed about 2%. Um, but it's not just the little airlines, it's the main lines too. Um, American Airlines, although it hasn't been pulling its schedule, it has said that it's recruiting 2,000 pilots this year, which is double the maximum number it has ever tried to recruit in the past. Um, you know, and other airlines, I will say this is a trend across the entire industry at the moment. Um, we wrote a story last week on Emirates having, I think it was 6,000 cabin crew positions, uh, which sounds like a lot, but then they had 300,000 applicants for those 6,000 positions, which is just mind-blowing, really. Um, and it's the regional airlines that are really suffering in the pilot shortage because the bigger airlines are poaching staff away um, to the better salaries. Um, and what they're finding now is there's kind of a bottleneck for simulators, instructors. There's going to be a lag in time before supply catches up again with demand. But mm. I'm saying all this like it's bad news, but it's not. I mean, this is a it's great sign. It's a good sign. problem to have in a, in a way, it isn't really it? It really is. You know, after the two, two years we've had, I think this is a fantastic sign that, uh, as we considered, aviation would bounce back to where it once was. Um, mm. You know, it's going to take a bit of time to get the balance right, but over Overall, I think this is a great sign of recovery. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I was sat on an interview with, um, just listening into an interview with um, the CEO of Southwest earlier this week, and he's kind of suggested that the problem for them wasn't so much hiring the pilots, but it was hiring the flight crew that would, uh, the flight instructors that would train these pilots. So mm. um, it will be interesting to see how that develops as the sort of recovery continues even further. Yeah, definitely. Um, best of luck to them. Um, mm. But overall, I think a very positive start to the IATA summer season and long may it continue. Mm. Um, but for now, I think that's all we've got time for today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and welcome your feedback at podcast at simpleflying.com. For more great content, you can visit our website at simpleflying.com or find us on social media. Simply search for Simple Flying. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating on your favourite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Bye.